So if you would um, look at this sheet here, it says four foundations of mindfulness outline. You can just start by holding it because I'll refer to it in a bit. The four foundations of mindfulness play a very, uh, very important role in the Buddha's teachings. And the outline of what the Buddha taught was actually in another group of four, which is the Four Noble Truths. So he spent 40 years, there's a lot of fours coming up, 40 years teaching, and everything he taught falls into the frame of the Four Noble Truths, understanding the nature of difficulties and suffering in life, understanding their source, which is the second Noble Truth, understanding the potential of getting beyond these these experiences of suffering, the experiences of difficulty. And the fourth noble truth is the path that we walk to greatly reduce and possibly end our suffering. In that fourth noble truth, mindfulness is a very key component. So the cultivation of mindfulness is a um, a very central practice that we devote ourselves to, to greatly reduce our suffering, greatly reduce our discontent and our frustrations and our disappointments in life. So that's sort of the larger framing, and we'll go through that, um, the Four Noble Truths, and the role that mindfulness plays in, uh, in creating a path for us to reduce our suffering. And then we come into the actual teachings of the Four uh, Foundations of Mindfulness. If at any point you can't hear me or you have a question, because the room feels intimate, we can have a dialogue through the day. I don't have to just uh, talk at you. So if at any point you'd like some clarification, you can raise your hand. Okay. So before we get into the four foundations of mindfulness, um, what what did the Buddha point at is the key to our suffering, the key to our frustrations? what makes life unbearable, what makes life um, difficult. And what he pointed at was life has inherent challenges. We have inherent challenges because of this body. We will feel pain. So many people would like to have a life where you won't feel pain. Um, And I would wish that for you all. But because you actually have a healthy body, you will feel painful experiences. That's sort of inherent of having one of these, is that you'll have to experience that. You'll also experience pleasure. Having one of these, uh, even people who have very strong illnesses, um, usually don't have zero pleasure. Pain comes in waves, and then there's a relief, and then other pain comes. So we're coming in to understand what is the nature of pain, what is the nature of pleasure, what are their characteristics, how do we relate to them in a healthy way and not make trouble for ourselves by being uh, frustrated or um, agitated by the pain that comes in life and not be disappointed when pleasures come and go, either sense pleasures like a really good meal or deep pleasures of uh, loving yourself or loving another person. Um, those moments where life feels like it's flowing beautifully and you would rather that be the norm so you try to grab onto it and life keeps changing. And so rather than meet the changes, there's a clinging, there's a grasping 
to those times of life that are uh, beautiful. So the first foundation, that means the first noble truth is that life has these challenges sort of built into it. Our suffering comes from, and we'll simplify it into another group of four, by not understanding, not understanding how this planet, how this universe, how this body is fashioned. We don't understand it. We don't see it clearly. And because of that, we begin to crave and cling to what's pleasant. And in its reverse, we begin to reject and struggle with, un- with what's unpleasant. So by not understanding, we crave and cling. And then this fourth part is we create um, patterns of self. We create patterns um, of who we are, who we want to be, that we try to, um, it's an extra layer of clinging and solidification to try to find security, to try to prolong what's pleasant, to try to reduce or uh, barrier yourself from what's unpleasant. So the, the craving and clinging is usually more immediate. I really want that thing, I really hate that thing. When we get into the, the fourth strategy that backfires, it's a larger one, it's our, our patterns of life that are built out of these strategies of craving, clinging, and not seeing. So how are we so far with that? Any questions about that? That was a, kind of a getting an overview, but I don't want to lose you on that one. By not seeing, Craving and clinging arise easily, and then we develop complex patterns in that craving and clinging that become uh, what we might call selfing as a verb, or um, becoming identified with, or um, bound within patterns that are built out of craving and clinging. Okay. (laughs) So I'm giving that outline because I it will make sense why these four foundations, and, and when you see the themes that are played out through the four foundations of mindfulness, they're aimed directly at the heart of the second noble truth. The second noble truth is where our suffering comes from. So when we see the architecture of the four noble truths and the architecture of the third foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of mind, why the Buddha framed it this way and why we want to practice this, it this way. It's really to um, sometimes see it as a, as a big wrecking ball that's supposed to go through these, these stiffened patterns we have craving, clinging, and selfing. And this fundamental one of not seeing, this fundamental um, way our mind works that we, we think we see, but we're not seeing. And so we have to, we have to disrupt that so that we don't get caught in our suffering. And that's what this, that's what the four foundations do. On the first, <clears throat> the first day, Donald Rothberg did a day long on mindfulness of the body. And mindfulness of this body um, is where most of our uh, craving and clinging and then sense of identity comes from. If you look in the mirror, you see yourself it's one of our primary ways that we identify. You know, I, I don't take you for temple. I can tell because you don't look like him. <laughs> it's easy. Um, <clears throat> maybe there's a recording of somebody who sounds like him, and I might be confused there. 
but this body is where I primarily uh, spend my time. So it's where I might have the strongest patterns of identification. I want it to feel good. I don't like it when it doesn't feel good. And there's a type of I am, I am me, I am temple. And that's here in the body. So the first foundation of mindfulness is really um, cleaning up that relationship to body and getting the appropriate relationship to it, a loving one, a patient one, a wise relationship uh, to being embodied and having the right relationship to a sense of identity, one that's a little bit more fluid than many of us are comfortable with. But we get sense of the many uh, expressions of who you are day by day. It's like, that's who I am. I'm a collection of expressions rather than any one of them being me. That's a whole progression of mindfulness is maturing your relationship to the body and the experience of being embodied. The second day long was on this word uh, Vedana. Um, and it gets translated, I think, not so well as feeling. Um, we bring mindfulness to Vedana. And Vedana is that part of your experience, right in the experience, that tastes uh, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So if you go to uh, get a coffee in a restaurant and you taste it, you taste the coffee, you taste the temperature, you taste how sweet it is, you might taste whether there's cream in it or not. So in that, there's many flavors. In every one of your experiences, there's always this uh, flavor, this tone of Vedana, of whether the experience itself is pleasant, the experience itself is unpleasant, or the experience is neutral. And it's actually a range. It could be very pleasant, mildly pleasant, in between where you, you just can't quite tell, and we call that neutral, mildly unpleasant to very unpleasant. There's mindfulness of Vedana because that's often where our strongest uh, craving and clinging comes from. So it gets a whole foundation to itself. The body is where we do a lot of identification. Vedana is where we have a lot of reactivity, and so it's the second foundation of mindfulness. The third foundation of mindfulness that we'll be exploring today, I'm sorry, the, I'm not sure if I mentioned that Sharda um, about a month ago taught the day long on Vedana. The third foundation that we're going to be working with today <clears throat> is uh, mindfulness of mind. And there's this word uh, chitta that gets translated either as consciousness or mind. And it's where we begin to not so much look at the uh, the content of our experience, but we look at what is doing the experiencing. What's it like to experience this thing? So we're all sitting here in a room. There's visual experience, there's auditory experience, there's experiences in your body. What is the space like inside through which you are experiencing the room? Are you at peace? Are you impatient? Are you grumpy tired because you didn't sleep so well last night? Is there a bubbling up of excitement because this is your favorite topic? Um, are you looking forward to something later on in the day and that's kind of bubbling up? So really when you're looking at mindfulness of chitta, you're looking at this, that the inner quality of what is doing the experiencing, not who is doing the experiencing, but what is the, what is the internal 
uh, atmosphere through which you are experiencing your moment-by-moment experience. So let me just pause there. Um, does that, do people feel oriented to that? Does, do you feel like that's something um, that makes sense? Sure. <laughs> sure. And then we can run this by all day long because um, <clears throat> this is something that's, um, that is a profound turning in the practice of mindfulness. And so we're going to be spending the whole day trying to settle into what is mindfulness of the mind? What is the mind? And not what, it, what is the mind conceptually, like we talk about neuroscience, but what is the experience of the mind. So right now, <clears throat> of the years you've been on the planet, from zero to 10, as you've known yourself, where are you in terms of rage? Zero rage to 10, you can be honest. <laughs> are you asking me? Yeah. Rage, uh, maybe three. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Maybe <four>. Yeah. <clears throat> so you know that, and how do you know that? You know that because some part of you can already experience, yeah, but there's not a lot. There's a little, I mean, I can tell, but there's not a lot right now. Somewhere, you already have the capacity to begin to turn inward and say, what's the climate like inside in terms of this one factor, rage to calm? And then if we were to go to um, another internal climate, you might say, is does your mind feel uh, bright and available or sleepy and kind of removed? So we could ask that. How many people feel bright and available from if you're up towards past five right now? Okay, you guys are morning people. <laughs> <laughs> and how many people can, when you look inside, you can begin to guess that and feel, yeah, I'm a little, uh, little foggy, a little tired, of, as I know myself. I'm experiencing a little bit more of that sleepiness or fogginess. I'm not quite so available yet. Okay. So <clears throat> it's not that somebody else was mindful and then told you that. You're already using mindfulness to put the coffee straw right in the coffee and take the sip. And you're always like, I'm not guessing at it. Like, mm, yeah, I think I'm up in the rage factor. Like. No, it doesn't taste like that. What does it taste like? Yeah, actually, the, as I taste it right now, rage is pretty low. Fear, it's up there a little bit as I get to know you guys. <laughs> but not a lot of fear. So what is here? What are these qualities? What are these tastes right now? And then, because we're fluid, and you cannot control this, it will go through shifts all day long. And that's what we're going to be inviting ourselves to be mindful of. What is the quality of your heart? What is the quality of your mind, moment by moment? That's mindfulness of the heart, mindfulness of the mind. And some people might say mindfulness of consciousness. Yeah. Is the mindful part, I, I see it, correct me if I'm wrong, as my true spirit, observing my personality and all my traits and all my patterns. But, but the awareness is really the true me spiritually. Is that the yeah. At? yeah, it is. It is. A, <clears throat> as we get freer, um, 
we use less nouns to describe ourselves, like the true me, as if everything else is changing, but this bell isn't. So this is what I can rely upon. This is the me. And I, this bell is experiencing all the chaos out there. Even the knower is in fluctuations. And so as we become interested in the mind, not so much in the content of the experience, we're tuning in, we can begin to feel even this sense of witness is actually activity of witnessing. And so that's, that's where the mindfulness is coming out of. It's coming out of this uh, incredible capacity to be constantly witnessing and experiencing without owning it as a noun, the I am. Now, was that helpful? I think so. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for asking. So this is what we're going to be pointing at uh, in terms of mindfulness, um, turning towards what is, what are the qualities of heart and mind uh, throughout the day. Now the ways we're going to do that, <clears throat> everybody's different. So it's going to take some experimentation. It's a day of experimenting. Um, how do you approach this topic? What, what strategies work well for you? And then you might find that some of them work better at one part of the day and some of them might work better at the other part of the day. So you explore and keep exploring and you begin to learn how you become mindful of the mind. What, um, what is your way in? So one way in that works for a number of people <clears throat> is that you become mindful of something like the breath. And so your attention does go to what does it physically feel like in my body as I breathe in and out? There's stretching as I breathe in. I can feel my shirt sliding across my skin. There's coolness as the air comes in. There's warmth as it goes out. Feel my shoulders lift, feel them drop. So there's a very physical part of breathing. And you turn your attention to see if you can stabilize your intimacy moment by moment with what it feels like to breathe. That's mindfulness of breathing. And you establish it, you establish the flow of your mindfulness with breathing. And then at times you say, what is it like now to be mindful? What's actually happening inside? What does it feel like? Oh, well, right now it feels peaceful. And then maybe 10 minutes later, it's like, yeah, I'm starting to get bored. Oh, I, this is, I could be mindful of boredom. And now I'm getting impatient. Oh, mindfulness of impatience. Oh, I'm, okay, and now I've let go of that whole thing, and I'm back to being relaxed. Oh, interesting, now mindfulness of relaxation. So you start with mindfulness of the breath, and then every now and then you look in, how am I doing this? What is it like inside as I practice mindfulness? We all walked in here with our logistic mind operating. You probably couldn't have gotten here without it unless somebody carried you and held your hand and you, you had blinders on so you didn't have to engage. You all probably engaged a very active mind to get you here, but then you sit down and that mind is still, all the, all the cogs are still turning and we invite ourselves to be more relaxed. It's like, yeah, but what about this? And what about this? What about this? And, like, Shh. and if you watch, breathing, sitting, the internal experience begins to calm down. 
not as calm as often we want it, but you can begin to invite that. If you're conscious of that, you can feel your mind settling as you sit here and pay attention more to your breath than to the logistics of what it took to get here. So uh, this form of mindfulness is sort of like spot checking. You mostly are grounding yourself on mindfulness of the body in walking, we'll do later, or in breathing. And then every now and then you ask yourself, uh, what qualities of heart and mind are present here? And you build your ability to tune in and taste the many flavors of heart and mind. Am I wakeful or sleepy? Am I tranquil or restless? Is there anything aversive going on now? Am I um, bothered by the people around me or myself or memories or the future? Is there aversion present? Am I craving or desiring or wishing something different were here? So you get to taste these flavors of mind and you do that maybe what's called spot checking, mostly on the breath, and then you look up into the mind, and then you come back to the breath. For some of you, that will be your best way in to what mindfulness of the mind is. A second way is mindfulness of thought. So you're with the body, and your mind wanders. You bring it back, you're with the breath, and your mind wanders. And then you begin to wonder, What's happening with all this thinking? What is the taste of all this thinking? This flinking, this thinking. <clears throat> this is happy planning mind. Because the thoughts themselves are happy planning thoughts. So thoughts tend to reflect the quality of mind. So if you can actually get a sense of the, uh, the content of your mind when it's thinking, is it often a very good indicator of the atmosphere of the heart and the mind. If you're angry, you'll probably be having angry thoughts. You may not know you're angry because, yeah, so-and-so really did do it, and I'm really gonna go, I'm gonna, so you're in there with the angry thoughts, but you're not actually looking at the angry mind. It just feels so true. Why would you look at it? You're in there trying to figure out how you're gonna get even with so-and-so. Or you're in a very forgiving thing. It's like, you know, my mom, what it would have been like to have been raised by my grandfather? Oh, I got to forgive her more. So you're in this forgiving mind. You're, you're loving the content, but the actual, the space of the heart and mind is relaxing into forgiveness. So you can be in that, enjoying the content, and then find that the space itself has a flavor. The space itself has qualities. The forgiving heart has a taste. How are we doing? Anybody need reinforcement on that? Anybody tracking? People tracking? Yeah. Well, right away it makes me want to grasp. <laughs> when you're getting there, it's just, then it's thinking, wanting to grasp at something. That's many, many minds, <clears throat> the way minds work, they often need to, to land on something. They're built to understand objects, sound, um, sights, smells, tastes. So for many of us, we will be taken to the objects of mind. And then we're just asking to back off from that a little bit to notice what's the quality of heart and mind here. So the second strategy is to notice the patterns of thinking 
And from that, see if you can feel into what is the climate inside that's producing that type of thinking. Did that touch your question? Yeah. Sure. The gist of the question. Sure, thank you. And then as I'm thinking about it, I noticed that my feelings probably related to getting settled hmm. are and all of a sudden it dawned on me that is that because my state of mind is more angry most of the time <laughs> that these feelings come up? <coughs> I that as we get to know ourselves, we get to know our unique constructions. And it looks a little bit more like our temperament. We're looking at our temperaments. And some people have a more uh, peaceful temperament, disposition. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that's part of it is settling in to understand and building our intimacy now, if you're a, a wine taster, you can taste, you know, what side of the hill that grape was on, and you can tell how acidic the soil was, and how much sun it got, and what season it was, how much it rained that season. It's all there, actually, in the taste of the wine. Given how much uh, many of us would benefit from knowing wine, or knowing our mind, we should become connoisseurs of our minds, because those subtleties uh, have a the largest impact on our happiness uh, and our suffering. So becoming, taking the time to become more and more intimate with these flavors of mind um, is a, a tremendously liberating. And that's what we're going to be exploring today is um, deepening that. Not perfecting it, but just opening and deepening uh, what does it mean to be intimate with one's own heart space, one's own mind space. Hmm. It was heart-mind, yeah. and I simplified that to be, um, you know, it's not the body, it's not feeling tone, um, but it's emotion and um, thoughts. Um, could it be simplified just to say that it's looking, it's attending to our emotions and thoughts? I hear you saying, like, the climate of the internal yeah. space, and also it almost seemed like you were dividing the climate of looking at mind from thoughts, and so... Yeah. And then, we'll, from here, we'll probably just go into practicing so that there's a, we can get more experience on this, but this is a good lead-in. Um, so to reframe, um, as, as she has studied this before, she um, has held it and understood it as um, looking at chitta as looking at emotion and thought. Um, and... <clears throat> I would extend it, maybe into, rather than those two, to add two more things to it. One is that our emotions and our thoughts are not actually outside of the body. But many of us are not watching the link between them. And so it's very hard to have angry thoughts and have actually a very happy body. So usually there's some tension in the body that's correlating to tension in the mind and tension in thoughts. Or if, there's at, if you're at ease in the heart and there's ease in the thoughts, 
chances are that's correlated to something being at ease in the body. And so mindfulness of citta, we get in where we can, might be thought first, and then the space around the thoughts, the emotion around the thoughts, but then mindfulness of citta becomes, um, what does it feel like inside my body, this sense of being embodied, while these emotions are playing out and these thoughts are playing out, because that's also a realm of citta, the embodied experience. Not so much the feeling of warmth, but just is there ease and spaciousness in the body that will reflect ease and spaciousness in the heart and the mind, ease and spaciousness of thoughts. So some people actually can come up into citta, but through the, um, the door of the body and getting a sense that way in. And then we use uh, mental states and mind because there are aspects of mind that don't easily fall into the realm of emotion. Emotion's a, um, a beautiful and very powerful part of the mind and the heart. And usually where the, we can get these surges of um, either shutting down or capacity um, that are quite phenomenal, and those are in the realm of emotion. But there's, we wouldn't necessarily call it emotion when my mind um, brightens on a certain topic, but not because there's necessarily I like it or I'm inspired by it. That might be more in the realm of emotion, but just capacity of mind is getting clearer biochemically for whatever reason. My caffeine is kicking in or I'm finally digesting my food and therefore I'm not so tired. So there's certain qualities of mind that don't necessarily fit into the realm of emotion. It's how well are we focused? What's this, 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 uh, the spatial sense of my mind. Is it open? Is it uh, tired? Is it shut down or shrunken? Is there? Is it vibrating and agitated? I can be very happy, but, vi- but agitated by that happiness. I'm unsettled. Or I can be happy and just wide and spacious, like taking in a sunset, and it just fills you with awe. So there are qualities of heart and mind that are um, we need to know. And just due to language, they for me, they're outside the category of, of emotion. Is that helpful? Yeah, and I'd be interested because that last one, so we've got that more standard emotional state, the mental um, like thoughts, um, and then the interface between those and the body, those seem pretty clear. But that last one of like spaciousness, hmm. vibrational tone, yeah. so that's a little, um, the language of that is yeah. a little newer to me, so I'd sure. be interested today to hear you yeah. share yeah, and we will, and that's beautiful. Beautifully, in the sutta itself, there's there's structures for looking at that, and it's actually a it's a small part of the the sutta, but there's um, there's the language of that in the actual teachings. It would be very nice to be aware of all these things all the time. However, to begin with, do I start? being aware of these during meditation or during introspection, or how do we start? Well, uh, we're going to start formally, because we tend to have our best chance of seeing into something, and then invite yourself to see it informally. So we're going to practice it, but then we fill in our lives, and it becomes beautiful at any time of the day to see how your mind is operating. And it's fascinating. It's fascinating, it's important, and it's liberating. It's, um, it's where your happiness will come from. 
making sure your mind isn't getting caught in a trap. So we'll start formally. So I've listed ways. I'm going to guide. We're about to go into a guided meditation. But <clears throat> starting with the breath in the body and then every now and then asking, what's the climate of my heart and my mind this time? Noticing the thoughts that are arising or if they're not arising. Um, and then understanding heart and mind from how thoughts are operating. The third one, you can come in for some people somatically into the field of the body. It's like my, my body is very peaceful. Yeah, I'm noticing that my mind is also peaceful. It's, it, I'm very easily contented right here and now. Contentment is, um, is a taste of citta. When citta, when this mind is content, easily contented, it's uh, a blessing. And you can just be easily content and trying to figure out what you want to do for lunch. Or you can take a moment and actually taste a contented mind. It's important to know when your mind is contented because you'll get to see when your mind is sliding out of contentment. The more you know contentment, the more you know its contrast. And then the fourth way in, so there's breath, thoughts, the sense of being inside your body and what that's like. And then the uh, fourth one is, is just trying it out and seeing if you can be mindful of mind and not need breath and not need thoughts. They're very secondary and you're just inviting yourself more and more, like almost like moving your hands with, through the air and getting a sense of the air around you, its temperature, its thickness, its dampness. It's very subtle, but for some people that works. They're just um, landing their, their mindfulness right into the field of the mind and seeing if they can feel these swirls, the little rise of fatigue, and then it passes. Or fatigue comes and it seems to settle in and it brings in a sense of hopelessness. Oh, First I was tired, but now there's a sense of hopelessness. Oh, there's fear coming in. So you're becoming more and more mindful of just the field. Some people can do that. Uh, many people can't because there's so much stuff going on that it's harder to, to taste that. But you guys can experiment and see um, what that's like for you. Okay, so let's go into practice this. So you're invited to go to the back of the room if you want and get cushions to make yourself comfortable. Inviting your body to be at peace often invites our minds to be at peace. It's hard for our minds to be patient, relaxed, and present when there's something um, unpleasant as part of the experience. So we do what we can. We do what we can to invite ourselves to be into a place of well-being We're relaxing and showing up. And the first thing many of us need to do is actually tune into a state of relaxation, helping the body be at ease and relaxed, helping the heart and the mind be at ease and relaxed. And then it's helpful also if we can 
let our bodies be still, because that brings in a type of quietness. But not stillness through rigidity or stillness through force. That usually makes the mind tense and doesn't achieve the, the aim of having the mind be in a place of relaxation. So not with, with, a, with light discipline and a greater sense of relaxation and ease. See if you can allow yourself to be content with your experiences, the flow of these experiences just as they are. Letting the body settle, letting the mind settle. And then you can invite forth a sense of appreciation and interest within the flow of the relaxed experiences. The mind still might be busy, but as the body settles, the mind might settle a little bit and we're establishing relaxation, but not so much relaxation that we tune out and get foggy. We relax and then begin to appreciate, begin to taste and build intimacy with the flow of these simple experiences. So bringing the flow of your mindfulness, the flow of your heart, the flow of your mind, see if you can pick up what it actually feels like in your body as you breathe, letting your breath be natural. Can you relax into the breath and take this uh, sense of appreciation and interest in what it feels like as you breathe in and breathe out? And for many of us, it doesn't take long before thoughts arise and we've wandered a bit. Gently bringing your attention back to this flow of body sensations, this rhythm, as the air comes in and flows out, this incredibly sensitive body feels the expansion and rise of the chest cool air coming in and warm air flowing out.
And now see if from within that experience, you can use the flow of those, that, ex, um, that experience of body sensations to begin to learn right now, without any judgment, right now, what is the quality of heart and mind that's connecting with the breath? Is it a very beautiful, strong connection, full of relaxation and appreciation? Is it touch and go, hard to establish? Is the breath obscured because there's some content or preoccupation of the mind that won't let go? And therefore it's difficult to stay with the breath because there's a very insistent other experience. And then while you're doing that, just see if you can begin to uh, taste that quality of heart and mind. Ease and contentment, a struggling mind, distracted mind. do this, because we're not paying attention to the breath as much, we tend to wander off. We can only do this for so long before we wander off. That's natural. So right now, come back and see if you can pick up the tangible sensations of breathing. Now, while staying connected with the breath, seeing if you can let that support you to feel a breath coming in and coming out, but begin to appreciate, again, the qualities of heart and mind that are happening as you observe the breath. It's very helpful to not add judgment here, to not make a story out of it. But just while I'm connected to this breath, these breaths, is my mind tired? Does it feel available? Is it 
bright, easily distracted, easily connected? Is it hard to bring it back, easy to bring it back? Am I patient and loving myself here, even slightly? See if you can begin to watch and taste these activities of mind while you're connected to your breathing. And again, little glimpses versus trying to establish it and then come back to uh, connecting to the breath. The next thing to try 
is that while you're working with the breath, if you find that your mind has wandered and is caught up in thoughts, just before you come back to the breath, see if you can taste what those thoughts were like. Were they fearful thoughts? Loving thoughts? Generous thoughts? Anxious thoughts? Did the heart not seem so involved in just logistics? Or is the heart involved in those thoughts? And those questions can help you tune into the quality of heart and mind that might be present. And you do that for as long as you can stabilize that even if just for a few moments, and then come back to feeling your body and being grounded again in the rhythm of breathing. It's very helpful not to complicate what's happening with a story. That if your mind is in a difficult state, we get preoccupied with a story that we're not good at meditation. And really it's allowing your mind to be in difficult states and generating interpretations, but relaxing them so that you can come in and again, just get a glimpse. What is my heart and my mind like right now? And let go of what that might mean. It doesn't help tasting the heart and the mind.
Also, if you find that you're in a time that's very easy to be present, don't complicate it with the stories of, I am a good meditator, I belong here, I'm finally doing it right. Those will arise and we let them go and we just keep tasting. This is a mind at ease. Mm, this is a mind that's suffering and struggling. This heart and mind are tired. This heart and mind is sad and scared. This heart and mind is wide and generous. And now just to experiment again, see if we can begin to correlate how the body feels with how the heart and the mind feel. My body is generally at ease. Oh look, so is my heart and mind. <coughs> I don't have access to my body, it feels distant and my mind feels ungrounded. There's tension in the way I'm thinking and my shoulders are pinched around my neck. I'm drowsy in my mind and my body feels heavy. <coughs> Coming into the way your body feels and seeing if there's an intuition of how the body is feeling and expressing itself and how your heart and mind are expressing itself. heart and my mind, when I hear someone sleeping, gets tense, judgmental, or I'm wishing them well, hoping that they're getting rest. I'm concerned for them. It's sound at the ear door and it's affecting the heart, affecting the mind.
And lastly, for experimentation. See if you can not try so hard to connect with the breath or thoughts. You're just sitting here like you were waiting for a train or a bus. You're just sitting here. And the heart and the mind keep, keep going. They're just active. And so you're watching your heart and your mind in their activities. Now they're planning. Now they like sitting here and breathing. Now I'm checked out. We call this choiceless awareness, where you just sit patiently and see if you can catch any movement of mind as it generates thoughts. There's a shift in emotional texture. Shifts in these mental qualities. It won't stay still. This is sort of like taking a puppy to a park, taking it off leash and letting it wander around. You're just letting the mind wander around, get in trouble, let go of the trouble, get back in trouble, let go, get taken into a generous plan, yearn for objects like the breath, being a little less directive. And this is just direct mindfulness of the mind. Any questions about that actual experience or the difference between the theory and what actually happened as you did it? Yeah. 
and speak up for the room if you can. So the last uh, instruction was to have a, a practice of open awareness. During that time, <clears throat> is the idea to let all the sense doors be open and everything um, be part of the, the process? Or is it to focus more on the, the mind as the, the door to so his question was during the, the last part, which is um, called choiceless awareness, <clears throat> should you put, I'm interpreting a little bit, but should you put effort into just keeping all the doors open and therefore there's all these things happening and you try to meet them um, or instead just relax back into watching your mind be aware and not working so much out at the objects. Not sure if that, um, you can try both. Um, it can be very interesting. It's like being in a, um, a Pink Floyd concert with the lasers going and, and you just, you take it all in. It's like, oh my God. And you just let the world of the senses just be so open. And that can be a very interesting thing just to kind of open it all up, especially if you've had an underlying tendency of being having a tighter relationship, a more marshaled relationship, just my breath, just my breath. It can be a, a thing to kind of open up so that there's sound and thoughts and, and you're really encouraging the doors to be open. <clears throat> you can pass through that or go right to settling back into um, the fact that awareness is part of every moment. It ends up being something like a meditator's refuge that rather than being with all these things that are changing, you can begin to rest a little bit more and like, oh, I'm aware in every moment and therefore I'm actually gonna just settle back and just see what comes into awareness. But I'm, again, preferencing awareness and the activities of mind and not so concerned with the objects. But if I lose complete concern with the objects, I'll dissociate. So I do, do need to have a little appreciation until I can stabilize appreciation of mind. Appreciation of mind is a little bit ephemeral. And so if, as we let go of objects, we tend to get taken by thoughts and we're not conscious. So we need object support until we can begin to appreciate and just take so much interest like, okay, mind, you are so angry. Let's just ride this. Oh, yeah, you want to get even with everybody. Wow. Oh, now you've locked on. Yeah, yeah. It's like, wow, you are really generating this whole story. You might not need the object so much because you're actually taking interest in this surge of this injustice. That's and then watching that pass. So you might not need objects. As we progress and get more comfortable with the mind, it becomes stable enough that we can just watch activities of mind and not need objects so much. But sometimes it's helpful to reinvest in objects because we got a little bit too ethereal on mind and it wasn't supportive enough to get this sense of intimacy. So just pull it back down with a sound or the breath or yeah. the body and then from there. Yeah. From yeah, and so I might use the breath to reinvest and then just let the breath be there as a support as I begin to really appreciate qualities of heart and mind. And then if I've let go of the breath too much, I'll be wandering but not really know it because I'll be kind of floaty. I was like, oh yeah, the breath again. There we are. And then I do it for a bit and I just preference the heart and mind. Yeah. Uh, a couple of questions. 
this rarely comes up, but um, it did come up. Now I am had it come up in maybe four years. Somebody fell asleep and was snoring really loudly. Yeah. And in my previous sanghas, we we had a thing where you could politely tap the person. Do you do you have any kind of um, procedure around that when when that happens? I realize yeah. I could just breathe with it and and make a mental note of, of what my response is to it. But I just wondered since it was. It was quite profound. It was, yeah. it, it was big. Just <clears throat> um, following the language of today, the sutta, the profound thing in this particular part, not in the whole Eightfold Path, but in this particular part, is learning by not interfering and watching things take us out of our comfort and watching the urge to get them back into, to the degree that we could stand that. So the growth here is not to attune our environment to be supportive. And at other times I would do that, at other times. But because today we're watching the mind, we're not intervening so much. And we'll get into that, that's the structure of the, the talk today, or the, the, the sutta today. So for those of you that uh, and I'm I'm one of you. <laughs> that sound I find sometimes to be it just it's like a, there's an underlying agitation I I find very difficult. The invitation that will be liberating is actually strengthening our capacity to feel that irritated mind versus going in to correct the environment. And I'm inviting you into a Burma moment when I went to practice in Burma. Um, there was no thought to making my environment more conducive for my ease. It was always to grow up to meet the flow of my experiences. And so um, I'm inviting that with great bow and recognition that uh, it's a stretch and it does make our minds agitated. And then we have to deal with our agitated minds. Um, there's, more, there's more liberation in that direction than in, um, again, stabilizing our environment so that we don't have to uh, do that work. Thank you. And then there's kind of a part two, but that's, that's yeah. good for me to hear, is that I feel keenly aware of my mental states. In fact, sometimes in the morning I'll notice that I'm in a state based on nothing and that everything, and normally these are states of agitation, and there's an extreme sense, even now, five, six years into the practice, of wanting to correct it. Mm. Like, see, like, even early on, I used to feel the pain, and I'd say, ah, oh, okay, I'll feel it. And then I'd feel it, and I'd notice it disappear, and I thought, this is great. So try and remember this with everything. Mm. But now there's just a sense of, no, I don't want these states and I want out of them. Yeah. I'm fully aware of them and get me out of here. <laughs> That's great because that can that can be the the jetpack of your eightfold path. Get me out of here is either get me out of this temporary set of conditions or get me out of here like brah. So <clears throat> 
that that discontent either you you you're loving to yourself and you do what you can to actually change the set of conditions you're in because it's intolerable or you actually begin to uh, without any evaluation on you because we all have this maturing our relationship to the first noble truth by actually being intimate with suffering getting down into that hot bath that's like it's so unbearable we all actually need more of that and we have to pace ourselves with it we do have to pace ourselves because it can get so much that it just burns our um our will to keep going and that's when you do need to back off hopefully before you actually get to that point so that's one thing to say the second is that um, there are three parts of the Eightfold Path that deal with meditation. And we talk often a lot about mindfulness and concentration. But there's this beautiful part, right effort. And right effort uh, is where we do really cultivate the mind. And so if there's un something unskillful arisen, we do what we can to um, subside something that's not skillful. If anger is arising, we learn how to bring it down. And if love is arising, we learn how to encourage it. It's, so there are other parts of the path where we go in and we're really sculpting and gardening and growing capacities. This particular section, when we get into it, it's remarkable because it doesn't do that. And what it <clears throat> is pointing towards is just deepening your intimacy with all expressions of heart and mind. It has its own, it plays a very important role. And again, we'll get into that why that is framed that way. But for the today, we tolerate and become more intimate with things just as they are and try the least possible to intervene, except when we get so undermined that we have to recollect and regroup. I'll take uh, one more. concern with that, and I'm probably not hearing you right, is that I'm going to make them bigger yeah. by giving them more attention, and I want to do just what she was saying, get me out of here. Yeah. So are you saying to just be aware of it outside of the painful state, or do you actually mean to go into it? I actually do mean to build wisdom and capacity to go into them. And the way we do that over time is we learn to go in and then also come out and go in and come out. But <clears throat> there will come time when you might need to hold on to a tree and actually go into it and say, there's so much grief here. I've been running my entire life and I just feel it's within reach now. I'm not going to force it, but I feel it's in reach now to not run from this anymore. And there's a John Muir once tied himself to a tree so he could experience something like a hurricane. Um, he wanted to feel it without ducking or flinching. So there are times when we are building capacity to go into our fear, our rage, our obsessive longing, and begin showing up in the tremendous power of what's actually happening with not being taken by it or running from it, but 
uh, surfing and surviving through that expression, and then it tumbles forward. It can't last. We're afraid it's going to last. If, it, if I let it get that big, it will become permanent, or I'll get lost in it. And then like a, a strange thing, it spins, and then like a cork, we find ourselves back up at the surface, and we're no longer afraid of that. We, we have orientation within that. But I would do that, build capacity, neither be too courageous nor too fearful. We're going to go into walking uh, practice right now, and then there'll be time for more questions later. Is that, can we, do you feel comfortable with that? Okay. So, <clears throat> um, how many of you have experienced walking meditation before? Okay. I'll, and how many people do you feel like you'd like some support with walking meditation? Okay. So I'm going to teach walking meditation and how to do this. Um, but I th for those of you who can already extrapolate, Find a place where you can uh, walk back and forth. And then again, try these four mechanisms. Um, and if you can't remember them, just try one. Feeling the body and then spot checking the qualities of heart and mind. Noticing thoughts and seeing if that helps you understand qualities of heart and mind. Noticing what it's like to be embodied and if that body also reflects heart and mind. I'm relaxed in the body. Oh, look, I'm relaxed in the mind. This is a very easy place to be, or I'm tense in the body, oh, I'm tense in the mind. And the fourth one is just seeing if you walk back and forth and just let experiences happen. Can you ride that, uh, that roller coaster of the mind going in all these different directions without needing it to be one thing or another? So those are the four things we're trying today. So uh, if you're comfortable, rise and you can go walking. And if you'd like a little support to stay a moment, And we'll begin our sitting practice at 11.15, which is in 25 minutes. Also, if you could stay silent, that'd be helpful. It's, uh, it's hard to watch the mind and talk at the same time. It's one of the more difficult places to bring mindfulness, so... Um, keep yourself in a place of silence and enjoy your walking practice. Now, if you want support in walking, come to standing in front of where you were seated. Invite your body again in the standing posture to be relaxed, peaceful. Just begin swaying back and forth, left or right. And see while you're swaying, if you can invite yourself to be at ease, easily contented. And then begin appreciating what you feel in your body as you rock back and forth. You might bring your attention down into your hips and your legs, your calves and your feet. Feel the weight going back and forth, the pressures in your feet rising and falling as you shift your weight.
And now as you're swaying back and forth, let your weight come to rest over your left foot so that your left leg is carrying most of your weight and your right leg feels light. Putting your attention in your right foot. Lift your heel off the ground. And then we're gonna lift our foot, move it through the air and place it in front of us like a small half step forward. And then shifting your weight on now to your right foot. The left heel comes up naturally. Putting your attention in your left leg, calf and foot. And now keeping your attention in that left foot while you take that small step forward. And shifting your weight again. Heel comes up, take that small step forward, place it down. And now mindfully turning around right where you are, break it down and let it happen in many small movements. How do you turn around? Do you go left or right? How do you twist? See if you can take interest and feel the sensations in your legs, your feet, the twisting, the lifting, turning around. And you pause a bit, recollect yourself, and then commit to take 10 steps or 20 steps forward Stop, turn around, come back. That's the basis of walking meditation. So you want to find a place where you can take 10 steps forward and not cross anybody else's path. And when you hear a bell in about 20 minutes, you can slowly walk back to where you were seated. Seated. <laughs> 